We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, just a little bit of recap as you're turning, and as we're letting parents kind of resettle and, and kids get where they're going. Um, remember, 1 Corinthians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul. He's currently in the city of Ephesus. He's riding back to the city of Corinth, where he had spent about 18 months. And so he's writing this letter back to a group of people that he knows really well, that he loves, um, that he knows by name, he knows by circumstance, he knows by situation. And there's actually been correspondence back and forth. He's received oral reports of what's going on. There's letters that have gone back and forth between him and the city of Corinth. Um, and, and the church that has emerged there. So the church is three and a half, four years old, and there's a lot of just kind of behavioral issues that have emerged, that his desire for them is to reflect rightly the character of God in the city of Corinth. He's like, look, we don't build temples. That's not what we do. It's why this morning we don't say that this is the church. We are the church. We are the people of God. And so in Corinth, he said, we're not going to build this massive temple. Your very behavior, your character, your actions will reflect the character of our God to a world that desperately needs hope and desperately needs peace and that we know that that's found in Christ. And he said, so it's not just that you know the right things, that your behavior has to match, that the, the way that you live has to reflect the God that has rescued you and transformed you. And so we've been walking through 1 Corinthians just looking at each of these. I and mean, if you haven't been with us before, this is kind of just our MO is that we just, we pick a book and we just work through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter over weeks and months. And so what we've looked at the last three weeks as we were in chapter 7 was, was relationships. We've looked at the marriage relationship, um, especially in regards to sexuality. We looked at it singleness, and we looked last week at divorce and remarriage. Um, and this week, we're going to move into a new section. Um, what you're going to find is that Paul kind of introduces it, um, and you'll look in verse 1 of chapter 8, and he just says like this, so now concerning. And when he says now concerning, we, we see this phrase multiple times in 1 Corinthians, is he's moving from a topic that he was just in to a new topic. And so if we look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9, or at verse 1 of chapter 7, we see that there's been these letters back and forth. This morning, before we read chapter 8, um, part of kind of where we're going to be this morning is, is this idea that often, and sometimes you find it with, with younger believers, um, sometimes you'll find it with students, um, and sometimes it's just, maybe if we're honest, it's, it's the a question that's in our own heart is we ask these things like, so what, what can I actually get away with? Like, right, like what can I do? Like, I'll have people say, hey, I've been doing this, or I've always done this. Is it okay? Can you give me a scriptural, like, basis from why I shouldn't have to stop this behavior? Or someone has told me I can't. Would you tell me why I can? Right? And we ask these questions of, can't I? Why not? It's okay, Right? Give me some scripture to beat on somebody, right, so that I can prove that what I'm doing is okay. And what Paul's going to reveal to us this morning is that these are, some, these are the wrong questions to be asking. That, and he's going he's to really compare knowledge and love, all right? And so I think this will make more sense as we begin. Let's read in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, 
as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, you'll notice, little g gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we are all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, they eat food as if really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." All right, so 1 Corinthians 8. There's not necessarily this direct line of correlation um, because this week as you've walked through Pampa or the surrounding area, you haven't been offered meat that was right sacrificed to idols. That's not going on in the meat market. There's not a section at United that says, hey, this, is, this, is, this meat's okay and this meat has been sacrificed, right? And so make your choice. And so there's a, a portion of chapter 8, where we're going to really have to like learn from principles here, right? But would we be reminded this morning that even if, if 1 Corinthians 8 doesn't have direct correlation, direct impact on your Monday tomorrow, that it does for a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. That there are still folks where this is a situation where they live in cultures where meat is being sacrificed to idols, where that's still happening, where it's going to markets, where we see this in in, you know, Southeast Asia, we see this in a lot of places in the Middle East, where this would still be an actual legitimate concern for the church as to how they would handle this situation. Um, really what's going on is this, is that there, with all the temples, with all the, the religious structure, Corinth is kind of a, a, a burgeoning city with all of the, the religions, the cults of the world, because it's a port city, um, that there's basically kind of a buffet of religious choice. And so what would happen is that a temple would have a celebration, a remembrance. They would offer sacrifices to their particular God. And then the, the meat, some of it would be given to butcher shops to sell, but some of it would be um, used then by the, the temple, um, those who are, are taking care of the temple. And then some of it would basically be given in like a big party, and they would just invite folks. And there would be, just imagine like a, a restaurant, right? Like having this big party and celebrating. And so this food has been used in a worship service. And they're just like, hey, y'all come in and eat with us and celebrate as we worship our God who is present right now because we've just sacrificed to him. And so it was a social event that had a lot of religious implications um, because it was a worship for those who were the adherents of that specific temple. And so people 
would just kind of go. Some of them, it would be a very worshipful moment. Others were going because it was free food, right? It was a chance to be seen and to be known. It's what Paul is going to do here is he's going to say, look, we got to deal with this because many in the church who have, have grown up in Corinth, who this is their home, their, their normal kind of week would be involved in going and having meals um, at temples. They would do that. That was a part of what they did. And now there's been this discussion back and forth between Paul and the church saying, can we do this? Should we do this? Hey, we got some weaker brothers who say we shouldn't do this, but come on, Paul, you know that this is okay, right? Like, come on. We, we know this is okay. And so there's been this back and forth. And what I love about Paul is that he doesn't simply say, yes, do it, no, don't do it, that he always gives like this theological backing and basis from why he's going to give the implications and the practical that, he's, that he will. And so, uh, if you recall in, in Corinth, one of the issues the church has is, is arrogance. That they feel like they've arrived, that they feel like they have this knowledge that is superior to Paul, and so they just have been really boastful. And so Paul is having to, to remind them that they don't have all the knowledge. If you look in verse 1, um, most of your translations will show some quotation marks in here. So what Paul, he, he switches from relationships, and he says, so now concerning food offered to idols. We know, and then he quotes, all of us possess knowledge. This is something that they've, they've said that they're writing to him, saying they're like, look, as believers, we've all got this like special knowledge. And so like, can we not just agree that this is okay? They, they go on to say, and he says, look, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so what's going on is that Paul actually agrees with some of the knowledge that they're talking about. That they're saying, look, we know a few things, and this is why it's okay. And they're trying to justify the fact that even though Paul has told them to flee from idolatry, here's why we feel like it's okay to go and eat this food. And look, they give a few reasons. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we, right, we know that an idol has no real existence. They're saying, look, Paul, we get it. We know that God is one. There are no, there, there are no idols for real. And Paul would agree with this, right? He's like, you're right. Like, there is no real, like, competition with God, right? Those, they're going to go on and say this as well. They're going to say, look, God is one. So, in verse 4, we know that the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He's quoting them, and they're saying true and right things, that idols ultimately don't exist, and there's no God but one. And so they're showing some of this knowledge to justify, so why is it a big deal if we go and eat when we know the idols are powerless and that we know the one true God? Right? They'll continue, look at verse 8, to give some rationale from why they're doing this. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Right? And so what they're saying is, look, we, we understand that bo- the food doesn't, it's not endowed with something spiritual. It's just food. And it sustains us, and, and then it, it, it's expelled from the body. We've already seen Paul talk about this. And then we eat again because we get hungry again. And so they're sharing this information that is right and true. And Paul would agree with it and said, yes, there's one God. Yes, there is no true existence of idols. Yes, food is meant for the body, and body is meant for food, right? And it's just kind of a natural process. 
And so they're, they're claiming these true and right things, looking for Paul to finally say, yes, continue to do this. Because what they don't want to lose is the social aspect of it, right? It's going to cost them something if they cannot interact with the rest of Corinth. They don't want to lose that. They're, it's going to, they're going to be marked as odd or strange or weird as to, why, why don't you come to this? You used to always celebrate with us, and now you don't ever show up. They're looking to avoid this. And so when, when other believers in the church are saying, hey, I don't think we should be doing this, they're now saying, our weaker brothers, right? Like, we have knowledge, but our weaker brothers, like, we, Paul, come on, help us out. Tell them they're being foolish, right? Tell them that we're vindicated, that we're right in this. And so they give some, some right information. But what Paul wants them to see is that it's actually become an issue. So even though he's not going to disagree with some of the true comments they've made, he says, look, it's an issue. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, even if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you are sinning against Christ. So he says, look, the issue is you who feel okay with this, you who feel comfortable with this, you are drawing those who are bothered by it into sin. And so you are sinning against your brothers. He, he goes on, they, they make the claim in verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And in verse 7, Paul says, hold on just a second, however not all possess this knowledge. Right, so he's going to say, they're making a claim that when we come to Christ, that we just get this knowledge, we don't understand why they're being weak and not understanding it. And what Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. This knowledge you speak of, yes, we, we get the Spirit, but we don't all, all of a sudden just have all of this, this knowledge. That there is a difference sometimes in where our heart is and where our head is. That there is a process of sanctification, that for many of us, we can quote really true and right things about God, and yet it is not soaked into our action. It is not soaked actually into belief. That we can say, I know I should only worship God. Beautiful, true, right, correct. Let's applaud that. But then we worship a lot of things. We worship our independence. We worship our freedom. We worship our comfort. We worship our ease. We worship money or influence or power. And we pursue these things, and our heart and our attention is divided. But if pressed, we would have the right answer. But that our actual actions do not reflect the fact that we really believe this. So what Paul is saying is, yes, we can possess knowledge, but it doesn't mean that it's processed its way into our heart and into our actions. That, our, that us being transformed and sanctified is this lifelong thing. Now look, your salvation is secured in Christ once and for all and immediate. But the process of becoming Christ-like does not end on this side of heaven. So Paul is saying, look, we, we have to understand this. Now, this gets even more complicated and the water gets muddied based on what is your current baggage. What's your history? That not everyone has the same circumstances that have led to their belief in Christ. 
right? And so Paul is saying, look, for some of you, you actually grew up in the temple. Like your parents raised you in the temple. And so when you go back, it's no small thing. You know people, you have family relationships, you have been like endowed with this deep significance and meaning. And that's going to be really difficult to separate. For some of you, right, you grew up Jewish or you grew up completely out of any temple situation. And for you, it's just a social outing. It's easy to show up, and you see no significance in it. You're not concerned. You're like, I know there's only one God. Idols have no power over me. And so it's like you show up, and it's, it's easy. But for your brother, for your sister in the church, it's not so easy. They too can say, we know there's only one God. We know that the idols have no real power, and yet they walk back into a circumstance, and it feels like it owns them, that it controls them, that it has power over them. And you're telling them, get over it. It's okay. No big deal. Believe this. Trust this. Know this. And let's run back into a really hard situation. And so what the, what the strong, this is how they're referring to themselves, what the strong are asking is Paul, man, kick the weak in the rear end so that they'll quit giving us a hard time about this. Like bring them up to our level. And what Paul is going to do here is he's not going to address the weak at all. He's only going to address the so-called strong and say, wait a second, this knowledge that you have is actually becoming an issue. Look back at verse 1. So now concerning food offered to idols, they claim, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul then says in response, but this knowledge, in quotations, it puffs up. He's saying, so your knowledge is actually making you arrogant and boastful. It's making you look at someone and you think you're better than them. He's like, it's leading you into sin. It's not creating humility. It's not creating love. It's creating like arrogance and brokenness. And it's building and puffing yourself up over someone else. Verse 2, he says, it's actually ironic. Look, he goes, if anyone imagines that he knows something. So he's talking to those who are claiming we know stuff. He goes, if anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet as he ought to know. So what he's saying is those who are in the room right now going, come on, it's not a big deal, we know stuff. He's like, those who talk like that are revealing how ignorant they actually are. They're revealing how much they actually don't get it, how much they don't understand. And so as you boast of your arrogance, as you are becoming prideful in your knowledge, you're actually revealing that you're not a knowledgeable person, but you're a fool. Because he says, look, look at what the, the comparison is to. Verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so Paul is going to say, look, yes, idols in, on one hand do not exist. There is one God. But to many, idols are just as real, right? He's like, there is a demonic element to them. There is power and there is generational connection. There are these things that people would give themselves over to, right? It's, it's the reason multiple like, world religions have developed. It's why if you press on someone's idol in this day and age, which isn't even religion, but maybe power or money or relationships or pleasure or comfort, if you press too hard, they'll fight you. They'll do anything to defend their right to worship in the way that they want to worship. And so Paul says, you're right. They don't have real existence, but they, it, there is real power. 
Look at how he says this. Verse 4. So as to eating food offered to idols, they're claiming we know that an idol has no real existence. He doesn't refute this. And they're saying that there is no God but one. Paul would amen this. But look at what, how he says in verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are, and through whom we exist. So he's doing this comparison. He's like, look, for many people, there are these little G things, these little L lords that own them, because there is a battle going on spiritually. He's like, but we do understand there's one God, and it's not a fair fight, that he's one but that we are still in the midst of sin and brokenness, and so there is still power and there still is an effect even in the truth that there is one God. And so what he's trying to explain to these who think they're wise, these who have knowledge, is this. is Man, your brothers and sisters aren't just like going, we don't want to go eat. They've actually been affected by something. And they're trying to separate it. They're trying to really trust and learn to live and to believe as there is only one God. But that they've been affected by this sin differently than you have. And what he'll go on to say is, look in verse 3. Is there is a knowledge that matters, but it's not what they're claiming. But if anyone loves God, verse 3, he is known by God. He says, you want to like extol your knowledge, your insight, your intellect, the only knowledge that matters is if you're known by God. Not that you know about Him, but that He knows you. What this reminds us is this, is that God pursues us first. We see this throughout Scripture, right? That God pursues us. He opens our eyes and opens our minds and opens our hearts to see Him, to receive Him, to accept Him, to know Him. And when he does this, then we begin to be connected to all truth and all wisdom and all knowledge through his spirit, right? But it's God who initiates it. And so if we understand that God is the one who pursued us first, who reveals himself to us first, there's no room for pride, right? We don't go, we don't beat our chest and say, look at how much wiser, smarter, better I am than you. Get with the program. In humility, we say, look at the gift that I've been given, that I know something, that I have something given by God. In Matthew 7, we have this scene before God where those who have done things in His name are standing before Him. This is verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? Paul is saying, look, it's not our knowledge of God that matters. It's his knowledge of us. Are we in relationship with him? Does he know us? Has he called us his own? Has he claimed us? Has he adopted us as sons and daughters into his family, into his kingdom? And he does that through Christ living on our behalf, perfect and holy and righteous, where we didn't, 
going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and our rebellion so that we don't have to because it would have crushed us. And then he beats sin and Satan and death and lives again today, telling us that his promises are real and right and true. And in that, he pursues us and he he whispers and he says, you're mine now. Come back into right relationship with the Father. That he knows us. And in Matthew 7, we have folks who are going to stand and say, look at all the things we did in your name, on your behalf. And he's like, yes, you did those things for you, not for me, because I never knew you. And so Paul is telling us in verse 3, anyone who loves God is known by God, right? The point isn't what we know about God, it's that He knows us, and that's where the basis starts. And from that, we learn about His character so that we can reflect it. We learn. It's not that we have a fear of knowledge, but if our knowledge isn't leading us to love, then it's wrong knowledge. There's a warning here that our knowledge does not puff up to hold us up above someone, but that it leads us to love, to reflect the very image of God. And so the pattern is this, that that our knowledge matters, but it's that we're known by God. And because God knows us and pursues us, we respond, and so we're humble because we've been given something that we didn't deserve and we didn't pursue ourselves, which then means we have true knowledge. And with that knowledge, we begin to love God, and we begin to love His people. Right? And that's why love builds up in verse 1. Paul reminds them of the most supreme act of love. Look at verse 11. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died. He's like, your behavior right now is actually sinning against people. It is potentially destroying them. And Christ died for them. Like, right, it's like your knowledge, you think your knowledge has more to offer them than the fact that a sinless, perfect Savior stepped in in their stead, in their place, to take the wrath of God, whom it was, he was innocent, and they, he took it in place of the guilty. He's like Christ died to free us, to love us, to pursue us, and now you are actually leading them through your so-called knowledge back into sin. Back into, back into struggle. And so this issue in chapter 8, sometimes what we see in chapter 8 is people say, oh, this is about offense. Like, I'm offended that you have a tattoo, right? Or you're offended that I drink. Or what, like, whatever it is. Like, it's, it's church people being offended with each other. This isn't about offense. This is about a lack of love that is hurting other believers. It's leading them to death. It's leading people back into sin and to their destruction, Right? Maybe one of the few kind of similarities we might have to this would maybe be this. Maybe this will help illustrate it. So many of you grew up in homes where either alcohol wasn't utilized at all or it was utilized correctly, right, in moderation, like that you saw it exampled and modeled well. And then for many, that was not the case, right? That it was, it was modeled um, really wrongly, right, with drunkenness and with with abuse and all sorts of things. And so based on someone's history, right, you can get to, to, to the legal drinking age with a very different perspective on alcohol. And then based on your own proclivity to sin, right, that it may be that you tended to abuse it or that you tended 
to fear it or that it was just a non-issue, right? Like that we can all be in different places due to our own nature, let alone our family history. And so Scripture does not forbid drinking. It does forbid drink, drunkenness, right? But it talks about wisdom. And so as someone who maybe has no family baggage and no personal baggage, that you enjoy a social drink, and he says, so here's the danger, though, that if you know someone has a struggle with this due to family history, due to their own history, a tendency to alcoholism, if, you're t- if your tendency then is to always back, it's no big deal. Scripture allows us to do it. It's okay. I'm not getting drunk. It's okay. And you continue to pop the top for them, that you may very well be walking them down a path of destruction that leads them on a path that you're not on back into sin and abuse Right? And far from the Lord. And your claim is, I have the right to drink. Scripture doesn't tell me not. Paul, what are you going to do about it, Paul? Right? That's the attitude that the Corinthian church has right now. And Paul is not disagreeing with them that you have the right. But Paul is saying, are you really going to flaunt your right as you destroy your brother or sister in Christ? Like the point isn't, can you? The point is, should you? And not even is it should you ever, it's should you in this situation. If you're watching people be trampled over and destroyed and walking away from Jesus, are you really going to stand there and say, but I'm right? He's like your brothers and sisters whom Christ died for are being destroyed because you want to flaunt your freedom and your rights in Christ that I'm not even telling you you don't have. But the, the example we have is not knowledge, it's love. And Christ died for you and for them. That's the supreme act of love. Why are we not talking about love? Why are we talking about knowledge here? And so, church, there are some implications for us, right? That Paul starts with the basis being theological before it's behavior. He doesn't just slap them on the hand. He says, hey, let's, let's talk about why. And there is some real loss and real inconvenience sometimes, right? That for the Corinthian church, sometimes as the, as, as the church, what we've done is we've looked at people and said, hey, if you come in, we're not really going to ask you to change much because Jesus loves you and he forgives you, right? And we don't want to inconvenience you. But Paul is saying, stop going to the mills. That will inconvenience, it will inconvenience you socially, this conversation is going to continue in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 as he looks at the different nuances of it, okay? But he's going to say, we don't continue to go back to somewhere that is destroying our brothers and sisters. And so our freedom in Christ is sometimes the right to say, I get to enjoy this. And sometimes our freedom in Christ says, I'm going to lay this down for the sake of my brother or sister, that I have the right not to do it. Right, that in our freedom we can or we cannot, and the situation may determine that. The person may dictate that somewhat. And so there is real loss and real inconvenience for the Corinthian church because what they're hearing is socially, people are going to ask me, Well, I don't come to the celebration anymore. I'm not going to get to go eat. I'm not going to get to interact. I'm not going to, right? They wanted to be known people. And he's like, Now we have to explain it. Now we have to not be there. It it inconveniences me, Paul. It has a cost to it. Look at verse 13. So Paul says this, 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You notice he doesn't say meat sacrificed to idols. He's saying, look, if I can lay a freedom down to the nth degree for the sake of not destroying a brother or sister in Christ, I'll do it. He's like, so I'm not even, if it means that if if it bothers you so much that I eat meat, I'll just lay the meat down. If it means that you won't walk back into a life of sin. He's like, if I need to hold a freedom up, I will. If I need to lay a freedom down, I will. Because the point is, is that we're fleeing idolatry. And Paul has said, look, you, you go, and in good conscience, you're not worried because you know the idols are powerless over you, that God is one, and you're there socially. He's like, so for you, it's good. And then a brother who has struggled because this is his past sees you there. And here's you saying, come, why are you not doing this? Like, God is good, God is one, no big deal, idols are powerless. And he walks back into the situation and he sins. And he becomes overcome by it again. He's like, was that meal worth it? Of course it wasn't. Church, as we talk about fleeing idolatry, you're not going to be faced with sacrificed meat this week. But church, we are faced with We live in an area that loves its independence, right? We do not like people telling us what to do, right? Like we barely tolerate it from one another who live here, right? Let alone someone coming in and telling us what to do. We don't like it from bosses. We don't like it from the government. Like we don't, we just, it just chafes against us because we're like, we're doing our thing, leave us alone, right? But if we're not careful, that that desire to like kind of worship independence begins to say, I don't really want to be rescued by God, like, I can figure it out. I can figure out how to get back to him. God, you don't really, I don't need the cross. I'll just be a good person. Oh, I don't, I don't need y'all, right? I'll figure this out. I don't really need community, right? Because we have this bent towards independence. And so there's parts of it that are great, right? We, we, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps in a place with no water and have still figured it out. Or it can mean that we just, we kind of walk away from needing Jesus and needing the church whom we very much need. Right? Like that we have to understand we do struggle with idols. That this week it may be that you have to flee from, from ease and from comfort. Right? Of going, if I make all my decisions based on what makes me most comfortable and what makes the most ease in my life, often those decisions are actually leading me away from Jesus, not towards Jesus who says that suffering is part of what happens in our life as we pursue him. We walk in his footsteps. Right? Like that we have to understand we have idols that we must flee from that are cultural, that are in our area. That we have to persevere in the faith. Right, John writes in First John, right, like that there's some that will, that it'll appear that they were a part of us, and then one day they're going to get up and walk away. He's like, so that you'll know they were never a part of you. And he's, it's not that you're going, oh, I knew that guy wasn't. It, it's those who looked like they were. Like that part of our salvation is simply that we stay persevering after Jesus. It's not that that's what keeps us saved. It's evidence that we were saved. Chapter 8 is a warning to us who love knowledge. It's a warning to the wise that we do not love the accumulation of knowledge to the expense of others, that we would hurt them and not love them. Our knowledge of Christ 
has to be growing in our love for people because he loves us. He pursued us. He did the most sacrificial love. We have to be okay with the fact that we're all in different places, that it's a process, that it's not saved and sanctified all at the same time, and that some of us are going to struggle mightily with things that others of us have no struggle with at all. And so are we going to be mindful just not to, like, trample on a brother, right? Not to be one more place where he just feels like there's a foot on his throat. Are we willing to lay down a freedom that we have for the sake of someone else that we're going to walk with? And not say, hurry up. But just say, man, keep, keep trusting Jesus. Let him transform you. Let him rescue you. Let him, let him refine you. Would we note that the correction in chapter 8 is not for the weak, it's for the strong? And so this morning, if you find yourself, if you think I'm wise and I'm strong, the warning here is not for the one who is weak, it's for the one who is strong. That our, that our growing understanding of the character and nature of God, our growing understanding of His Word, had ought to mean that you're a more loving person a more selfless person, a more sacrificial person, because you are reflecting the image of a God who it cost him something to pursue you, and it cost him something to love you. It meant humiliation and death, beatings. It has a cost. And so what what we've done now is we've kind of laid an introduction to chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 as to what some of these relationships are going to look like and how we do that outside the church, how we do that inside the church, right? If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know chapter 13 is the love chapter. Well, that, that is culminating because this conversation is now starting on how do we actually do that? How do we actually do that? Instead of just knowing the right things that we are also living these things. So church, the band is going to come back up. Um, if, if you this morning are convicted because you're like, man, I, I, I know a lot about Jesus, but I'm not a very loving person, would, would you just confess that, repent of that? There'll be some men and the women in the back of the room if you need to talk with someone, to pray with someone. If you feel like right now you are the weaker one or the one that's far from the Lord, would you know that He's loved you and He has pursued you and that you've done nothing that is unforgivable this morning, that His grace outruns your sin? Church, we want to be marked by people that reflect the character and the image of our God in Texas Panhandle, right? That we will pick up freedoms, we will lay freedoms down, and we will look like Jesus because He's pursued us and loved us. So the band is going to come. Welcome to just worship our King who has pursued and loved you. Would we not see that as cliche this morning? But would it mean something to us? Let's pray. Father, we simply want to say thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you that you laid down rights and freedoms that you had in heaven. And you laid them down to pursue rebels who have lived lives in opposition to you. To make us brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters. Father, that you have already modeled all of this for us. Father, would we not find ourselves aggravated with those who are coming along behind us, but encouraging them? 
What would we be reminded, like Hebrews 11 says, that there is a, cl- a crowd of witnesses encouraging us on as we persevere in the faith until either you come for us or we die to go and be with you. Father, would we be marked by love, but not simply love as the world defines it, but as you define it. Would you speak to us now in Jesus' name? Amen.